remain in light. Stop making sense. This is Off The List. Hello everyone, my name is Ben, and at this point, like, how would you wander here if you did not know what this was? It's <laughs> off the list, baby. Alright? I'm Ben. I supply the music for Nadir to listen to. Nadir supplies the movies. That's me. We get going from here, and let's just get super, just jump straight in because this week we're so excited for It's Talking yes. Heads Week. Yes. It's, it's kind of a week where we're cheating a little bit, but we don't care because Talking Heads are worth cheating for. Absolutely. And we're going to start off with their seminal album, Remain in Light. Full disclosure, Nadira has listened to this album before. Yes, I have. even still, I'm going to, because of that, just give a little bit of background on this album, and then Nadira will give her thoughts on it. So, for anyone who does not know, Talking Heads is the most important rock band ever, uh, <laughs> no, they're big a, facts. They, big facts. They're an incredibly important post-punk and new wave rock band from the 1970s and 1980s. Most iconically known for their frontman David Byrne mm-hmm. and his big ass suits, <laughs> which come from this album. Yep. And Remain in Light follows a very tumultuous time for the band. They toured Fury Music, and there was actually a lot of conversation about the band splitting up because Tina and David, there was some conflict. Jerry was planning on actually not even continuing to be a part of the group. And so then they all went down and went on vacation together and were just kind of jamming. And all of a sudden they came up with the demos for this and they said, you know, I think we've actually got something here. And they brought them to Brian Eno, who has worked on their previous stuff. Brian Eno, an incredible ambient producer. Yeah, I think everyone knows Brian Eno, right? Yeah, exactly. If you don't know Brian Eno, you know Brian Eno. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so Brian Eno was in the same camp. He said, I don't really want to work work with them anymore. And then brought this stuff to him. And he was like, "Eh, okay, you know, I'm I'm actually going to produce this shit up. They make the album. It comes out. And... Something that I think retrospectively people don't remember about this album is it wasn't very popular when it first came out, actually. No. Um, It actually took a really long time for it to bolster up. And the reason why was because the demographic that actually made this album get recognized was the black club scene. Yes, it was. (laughs) Exactly. And it was because this album just could not get any traction in the rock sphere of america which is very white and has a very kind of guarded sense of like the sounds that are supposed to exist in it and then mm-hmm. after you know like a couple months of it being out someone started slipping some of these songs into the new york dance scene and they popped the fuck off of course because, they did because everyone in the new york dance scene was like oh i'm black and this music is super african inspired and super funk inspired yes. let's fucking go yeah and from there it just continued to shoot up it finally made its way to mtv and after david byrne kind of became known for that gigantic suit in his once in a lifetime video mm-hmm. it just rocketed this album up years afterward to yeah. this kind of classic status that exists now in and with that background to kind of how it has launched itself into this classic status 
before we talk into the actual music, Nadira, what does this <laughs> album mean to you? Okay, so I kind of, yeah, I mean, it's 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 hard to talk about with um, Stop Making Sense going second. So I think I kind of want to save my initial talking heads, like the first time I ever heard talking heads for when we talk about the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of this particular album, I think not since like Miseducation of Lauren Hill. And I mean this in terms of albums that I listened to in order, not obviously not the order they came out in, but um, I grew mm-hmm. up on the Miseducation of Lauren Hill. It's like my favorite album of all time. And I mean, it's kind of basic at this point, but anyway, um, never since that album until I heard this album remain in light and just the talking heads in general, have I heard a band so seamlessly meld genre like multiple different genres Mm -hmm. and I think experiencing that was (laughs) you know that moment in Ratatouille when he eats the cheese and the grape and all the colors are like flying oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) that's such a good comparison wow listening to this album and hearing this band for the first time is like having that moment except instead of with food it's with music and I Mm -hmm. hadn't heard or had that moment since I was a kid in my mom's car listening to Lauren Hill so it was a very almost emotional experience for me because like oh wait like I kind of forgot how much I love this thing we call music you know yeah um Mm -hmm. and it's just so I mean and then I looked it up and I was like I mean I can kind of tell that they're white from the way they're singing but are they from what they're playing? And so I think to actually pay homage to Afrobeat, to actually pay homage to funk in a way that didn't feel um, derivative, that felt new, but still felt respectful. And knowing that they recorded it half in the Bahamas and half in Philly, which is like, mm-hmm. I'm half Caribbean, also from Philly. So it's just like a very yeah. me situation, you know? It was very, mm-hmm. I love this album. I love this band. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. That's amazing. I had never realized that I, that's actually a fact I didn't know about the album is that it was half recorded in Philly. I knew it was half recorded in like the Bahamas, but not in um, yeah. Philly. That's super rad. Um, but yeah, that is, that is a really great explanation for just like what kind of draws this album in is that way in which it melds sounds together so perfectly into a sound that you can only describe as, Oh, that's talking heads. And right. They, they do each genre with just so much respect. And I want to talk about the first time I ever listened to Talking Heads was this album. Mm-hmm. Uh, I somehow had missed them. You know, I, I mean, it was when I was like a teenager, so I wasn't that old. But I had, you know, not heard anything in the background. And then I had heard someone, oh, you got to check out Talking Heads. And the sound of David Byrne going, Jug-a-jug, ah, mm-hmm. is burned into my memory. Yes. It is... I, I cannot unhear the beginning of this album. And yeah. I, I mean, I don't want to. It's just that is how iconic it is to me is that is maybe to this day, like one of my favorite Talking Head songs just because of how immediately I related to what you said with like immediately. I just loved every single aspect of their melding, how funky it was, how groovy it was, how much they pay homage to these genres while still pushing them forward. Mm hmm. And another, this is a super fun fact. This is, quote unquote, the first. It's never the first, but it's like the first. Mm-hmm. This is the first album to use loops. I heard, I read that and I was mm-hmm. like, what? <laughs> the yeah, <fuck?" laughs> exactly. It's the first super major popular album that looped. And that is how these songs are constructed. 
for anyone yeah. who has not listened is you take any of these just like very simple looped ideas and you stack them on top of each other and you just take what would have been like a 10 second loop and bring it out to a six minute song which in an age of like lcd sound system does not sound very odd to us right but in the 1980s to give you just like an idea of what was popular at the time it was Mm -hmm. like sticks yeah and queen like this album is incredibly progressive i have to say that i do think that there's a caveat to that so there's actually a, a really 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 great moment in um Boz Lerman's show on Netflix, I forget what it's called, about the birth of hip hop and um, breakdancing. I can't believe I'm forgetting what oh. it's called. Oh, yeah, no, no, no. It is, it's like the first, that's an important caveat. It's like the first rock album, Jeans yeah. Loops. So, yes. the, so loops are incredibly important to the history of like modern black music and particularly modern dance and particularly modern black music that was made for people to dance to. So music that people would break dance to, for instance, right? They would they would dance to the breaks in the song that came because the song was looping. And so there's actually a really amazing moment in Boslerman's show where um, one of the characters like uses a, a wax crayon on a record to figure out where to spin the record back to to loop and that's the magic of like keeping a party going for minutes keeping the break going keeping the dancers on the floor and that's how you get sort of like the perfect magic of being a dj and so to know that this is sort of the first rock album that did loops and to know that it was basically the black dance scene that carried this album forward just makes so much sense it's like even more synchronicity I, I very much appreciated that caveat. That was why when I said, like, first loop, I was like, quote, unquote. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it's all just kind when of When in like, doubt, black people always did it first. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, we all we all know that black people did it first. It's more just like, quote, unquote, the first album. No, but um, it is incredibly, I mean, you said the right word. It's incredibly progressive for them to be using these techniques. I mean, their f- concert film is also, quote, unquote, one of the firsts, too. And we can get to that. But it's just they pushed so many boundaries but still I don't know it it worked like I I just wonder through all of their sort of bickering and fighting if they were ever like this is all trash because no one's ever done any of this before you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah you you bring up a really good point which is that it's very easy to listen to and I want to highlight that because I think that that's like one of this album's biggest strengths is just is how easy it is to listen to it where even like a 14 year old ben who was still not kind of like able to appreciate a lot of the classic music that i do now this album immediately hits and yes i think that it's so shocking to me looking retrospectively upon it that it didn't hit um, until you look at, like I said, the context of where it came from within the sticks and the Michael Jacksons and everything mm-hmm. and how the black scene had to carry this album out because just like rock music would not have supported it. But I mean, it's just insane looking at this album's, you know, eight song track list that every single song is just an instant classic born under punches. The heat goes on. And then you go immediately into Cross-Eyed and Painless. And then you go yeah. immediately into The Great Curve. And then you go immediately What's into Once so in a Lifetime. What's so fascinating about this album to me as well is 
how much every song hits, but also how political it is. <laughs> This is an incredibly mm-hmm. political album. There's an anti-America song about a Middle Eastern man who's bombing America. There's um, an anti-capitalist song, which is my favorite. Yep. And every time Ben mentions Talking Heads, I just go "Houses in Motion" with a heart emoji. Like, yeah, <laughs> you know, there's so many really heavily political songs. Even the um, the Born Under Punches was made, like David Burns said that he wrote that song thinking about the sort of public paranoia after Watergate scandal. Like, it's very... Exactly. I was going to say that that very album... very political. That, that song starts out talking about public paranoia and oftentimes about the way that that heat just crushes and destroys kind of your individualism. And then... It, that's yeah. another really important theme within this album is individualism. It's yeah, most com- and identity. It's, and it's most, you know, prominently talked about on Once in a Lifetime, mm-hmm. where you have the famous just like, this is not my automobile, just like that yeah. kind of very preacher-like And that's, he also, he literally modeled that after like television, like televangelists, you know, which again mm-hmm. is another sort of political thing. It's just very well thought out, um, very... If you listen to the lyrics and ask, actually listen to the messaging, should be incredibly divisive, but it, it isn't. Or maybe it's mm-hmm. it's just me and all my friends listen to Talking Heads because we're whatever. But yeah, and, <laughs> but you know, it's I don't know. Mm-hmm. And one other thing I want to say about this album that I still believe to this day, but I just accepted at this point for how much I love it is that there's just this album has no right being as like fun to dance to as it is it is such a fun (laughs) album like it has it is so fun to dance to and like everything we've talked about with how political it is how much turmoil it came out of like bop after bop after bop hit after hit after hit i i it is so fun to dance to i can't even put into words how much fun it is to drive and put under born under punches or the great curve and I mean, just you just it literally it. makes your body move it's like even if you it just forces your body to move if you're a normal and human and a friend of mine it forces mm-hmm. <laughs> your body to move i don't know it's so it's so enigmatic it's so exciting it's so inviting you know it's 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 just everything it's everything i mean it's one of my favorite albums for sure to this day 40 years later insane insane i also think i mean not to like get into it into it we already talked about a lot of the genres that they play with but i i think what's very interesting to me is the way a lot of these themes about loops um and just i don't know i guess the melding and polyrhythmic mm-hmm. like sentiments and polyrhythmic ideas are emulated in the vocals as well. So mm, David yes. Byrne does this amazing thing where <laughs> he uses his voice like he's figuring it out for the first time. So mm. he, he really, he, a lot of times he's elongating vocals. And then after he elongates something with a vowel sound or elongates a phrase, he like squeals or squeaks or makes a noise, you know? And then there's a lot of random noises that just came to him, a lot of nonsense words, a lot of um, him singing the melody while background vocals are singing another syncopated version of the previous verse underneath him you know there's a lot of polyrhythmics a lot of weird sounds that couldn't really be classified as anything else and it's a very 
unafraid album. He's never afraid to go there. He's never afraid to be weird because it is weird. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And he really is about sort of just like figuring it out. You know, it all feels like a test run kind of, but the best sort of test run. It's great. Another really cool musical thing I want to point out from this album that I think is incredibly unique to this album. And I honestly haven't really heard many others try something like this and do pull it off as successfully is if you notice the album is like an inverse exponential curve where the BPM and the pace and how hard it hits you starts off so high with Born Under Punches. And then it just keeps going down and down and down and down until we get to the end of the album where Listening Wind and The Overload are so slow and meditative. And that is such a rare thing for an album to do is to have this just consistent like Every song just gets a little bit slower, just a little Mm -hmm. bit slower until by the Mm -hmm. end you're in this just absolute meditative state with David Byrne just moaning about societal problems. And you're like, I don't know how this works because that is not how normal album pacing works. Usually you can't just like bring people in one direction the whole time, but they somehow managed to do it over 40 minutes. And it blows my mind every time I listen to it in full. I'm like, how did they slow me down like this? And I was okay with it. Yeah, every every time. I mean, I think I listened to this album three times in between our last recording of the podcast and this one. And every single time I just in my notes, I I always put like it just it ends. So so it's so surprising that they don't pick it back up. Like you're expecting when you hear the overload, you're like, okay, I'm great. This is great. And then there's going to be a high energy song after this. And then there just isn't one. And you're just sort of left there. And you're like, wow, hmm. This is how did they do this? Because I almost didn't realize it was happening, but I also felt it happening. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Very fascinating. Very talented. And to be honest, that's all I have to say about it. Like, it's so hard to critique no, something I mean, that you love so much. <laughs> yeah, I don't really have much else to say about it either. Like, it's just an incredible fucking album that exists despite all of the things that could have tripped it up. Like, it could have completely butchered all of the African and funk influences. They could have just been butchered so badly. Or they could have not understood David Byrne's experimentation could have gone way off. The band could have just split up before any of this happens. Like, I, it always shocks me that this album exists because of just how many things had to come together. It took so many risks. For it to work. And they all came together. And God, it just sounds so good. Like, oh man, it it would probably be, out of what we've listened to so far, like the one thing I'd recommend to any single person who is listening is just like, you gotta check this thing out. Stop Making Sense is the movie for this week. It is the Talking Heads concert film. It was filmed in 1983. It was shot over four nights in Hollywood at the Pantages Theater. Um, It was directed by Jonathan Demme, who... Also, coincidentally, directed Silence of the Lambs in Philadelphia. So a very varied profile there. Um, And yeah, it was, I mean, I know that we mentioned sort of um, firsts and Stop Making Sense was the first, but probably not the first um, film to be shot with all digital audio. It didn't say concert film to be shot with all digital audio. So I feel like maybe that's the caveat, but whatever. Yeah. and then just to start it off, I said last episode that this and Homecoming by Beyonce are the two best concert films I have ever seen. And I can put it on my life, the two best that probably ever exist. 
And I stand by that. I stick by that. Um, Stop Making Sense was actually my first introduction to Talking Heads. And this was only three years ago. Um, I went to England. I met some music friends. And as a part of this club, um, their sort of first meeting, um, just to get new people to join their club, to join their organization, the student organization, was to watch Stop Making Sense. And I think that this... If you're going to be introduced to the Talking Heads, I would say that this is probably the single best way to do it, to hear mm-hmm. their music. For the, I had heard, I had heard Psycho Killer before. Don't know where. It's an incredibly popular song. I don't know, but everything I had never heard a single other Talking Heads song before. I saw this film, and I think it's just the best way to be introduced to their music. It has all of the energy, all of the love, all of the care, all of the detail, all of the fun, but it's still shows you the perfect melding of all the different genres. And it's great that you can see what people are doing that's making this sound that is so, like, intoxicating, you know, Mm. and so addicting. And I absolutely fell in love. I had never seen a concert film like this before. I absolutely fell in love with it. And, yeah, I mean, that's that. I mean, I guess we can talk more about it, obviously, but I just want to hear what you think before I go on and on and on. (laughs) I think the the larger thing that I want to highlight about Stop Making Sense is that as someone who listens to an absurd amount of music, and I've listened to every Talking Heads album, it had almost become like a meme amongst my friend group that I had not seen this yet. And everyone was like, how have you not seen Stop Making Sense? Like, it's the best thing of all time. And when that kind of stuff happens, you just kind of settle into this, like, oh, you know, I'll get there. Like, it'll happen yeah. eventually. Like, oh, oh, man. And every time you eventually get around to that thing, you're like, wow, I really was just an idiot. Because mm-hmm. it's just it's just so – it's just everything that Talking Heads is distilled into 90 minutes of just pure perfection. And Yeah, it's perfect. I cannot praise this concert film enough for how much it – represents the band so well how much it spans their discography in such a perfect way and like you said how much it is just so fun it's just so fun yeah it's so fun they really i mean i could talk forever about it um but i think so i kind of for a brief moment want to talk about what i mean when i say concert film Because I think a lot of people would say, well, isn't that depending on if it's one of the best concerts? And I think while that is a really big factor for obvious reasons, I think that there are a lot of concert films that do good concerts dirty. Mm. (laughs) And I think that to be a great concert film, you have to emulate the energy and the experience that someone feels when they're physically there and put it on screen which is a very very hard thing to do yes shots have to be perfect and dramatic and and exciting you have to catch all of the great in-between moments you have to have perfectly seamless transitions between songs and set pieces and days if you're filming it over multiple days, which most concert films do, you know, it really has to show the energy and the dynamic that's going on stage, but it can't just show it. It has to make you feel it. And I think that this film 
does that so perfectly. You feel like you're there with everyone. You get to see all of those little moments. I mean, my absolute favorite thing about this, and we can talk about it more in general terms too, but my favorite thing about this movie is the interplay between the background singers and the rest of the people on stage. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it just shows you. And I mean, everyone has their little moments and it shows you how much of a family they are for those 90 minutes that we get to see on stage, no matter what drama they're going through as a band backstage, they really are a family. And you can tell that they love playing music. They love playing these songs. They love what they created and they love sharing it with people. And they specifically love doing it together. And Mm -hmm. I think that that, it's just so pure. It's so pure. And you get to just like dance around and have fun and see them do incredibly innovative, ingenious things on stage that I had never yeah. seen before or ever heard or heard of. Um, and you get to see them do that, but you also just get to have fun. I don't know. It's so amazing. Yeah, I, I was going to tack on to that a little bit. I think the word that I really like describing that is the intimate moments of a live performance because mm-hmm. when you are at a live performance, there is so much intimacy evolved with not just the people that you're surrounded by, but also the ability to be so close to the performers. And oftentimes a lot of concert films or recordings of concerts will kind of just like shoot up on one person. And that's not how you experience a concert. You experience a concert in like a full panoramic view where sure, like the lead singer is doing something, but then you're also aware of what the side singers are doing, what the drummer is doing at the same time. Like all of these things coexist while you are at a live performance. And it does a such a good job at capturing those intimate moments, all coexisting side by side. And it's just so rare to capture anything like that. Yeah, it really was so engaging. The only thing, the only thing I wanted a little bit more of, and to be fair, they did give it right at the end, was I just wanted more of the crowd. I wanted to see the crowd a little bit more. Let's talk about that because I actually didn't. And I think that this is one of the only concert films I've ever seen where I was like, oh, I mean, the, the, the crowd at the end was great, but I liked them being at the end for just the last song. I really yeah. didn't care to see them throughout because I think that they built something incredibly special on stage. But I was actually reading up about this, and they said that in order to film the audience, they needed more lighting. Um, but the lighting basically inhibited the audience's energy. And so oh. that made the band self-conscious. So they actually did try it, but they ended up having what they dubbed as the worst live talking heads performance they ever gave. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny that they were like, we tried it and it fucking sucked. Sorry guys. Yeah. And so they were like, no, we're just going to keep these last little clips. Um, but I, I don't know. I think they created something so special on stage for kind of the first time ever in terms of a live performance captured on film I didn't really want the audience I wanted to see just more of them interacting and being together Mm -hmm. um and I do have to say like I can talk all day about specific moments about the big suits about David Byrne and his like weird quirky dancing and his lanky legs about Mm -hmm. him using the lamp about the background singers and their dancing I could talk for days about small moments but to me the band carries such incredible weight. They all do their fucking jobs. They <laughs> came to do what they came to do. Yeah. And the fact that every single person on that stage that was not a core member of Talking Heads was black 
was so important. When mm-hmm. you are playing this music that blends mostly black genres together with rock and pop, I guess, which, I mean, you know, everything is debatable in terms of if it came from black people, which it did. Um, (laughs) But it's so important to have those people represented on stage and when you're sort of recreating this thing. And the fact that they had everyone who was not a Talking Heads member be black and the fact that they all just fucking killed it. And not only that, they took an entire section out of the performance to say, go listen to James Brown. That's where all, all yes. this came from. <laughs> that, that I mean, I've been at live shows which have done kind of a similar thing. And yeah. it was amazing to see because I know for sure people in the crowd did not know that. And that's so, yeah. like you said, critical for them to be pulling from those genres as heavily as they did for David Byrne for and, David Byrne and crew to have the respect to know that they have to do this to do it right was yeah. so And I don't even important. think that was cuz that was the little section with the Tom Tom Club, right? The Tom Tom Club interlude where they yeah, play yeah. um just, yeah. Well, first of all, I forgot how big that song is. That song is sampled in Mariah Carey and Return of the Mac and like Grandmaster mm-hmm. Flash. But anyway, it was really really cool um that they sort of gave, gave Tom Tom Club that small moment to shine and that Tom Tom Club used that small moment to shout out James Brown, especially if anything, because it gave us um, time to like enjoy ourselves while David Byrne was changing into his big fucking suit. Yeah. <laughs> um, but no, that moment was that moment was really, really great. I don't, I don't know. They, they just do. They just pay so much homage and they have so much fun i think they treat lighting incredible i think the sort of costuming choice to have everyone be in muted gray tones except for chris france and the drums i don't know why he was wearing like a turquoise short but anyway because he could wear whatever the fuck he wanted because he was playing those drums he was um i thought that that was great i specifically think that the beginning of this show in this movie is phenomenal the building of each song mm-hmm. adding a member of talking heads was so visually important you know yeah so stunning so well done just all about building it just showed how much their sound is constructed out of what we've been talking about, those loops, those ideas, those components, yeah. and how when you c- continue to stack them on, you're like, wow, David Byrne by himself is so fucking fun. And then you're like, David and Tina, let's go. And then all of a sudden when yeah. all of them are out there, you're like, no, this is it. This is it. This is this is like Super Saiyan mode to like talking heads, all of them together. They're undefeatable. Yeah. A lot of the show to me is about building. It's about building on something. It's about building blocks and I think to see that visually represented and then sonically represented as well was just really really cool you know it's it's rare that you see that it's rare, and I think just like how we were talking about the album sort of having its moment at the end where it slows down I think having the concert film build up I think that that's such a I mean I don't know anyone else who sort of does it that way mm-hmm. yes um, I have a funny thing that occurred to me while I was watching it um, which is that I think we should both try to name our favorite dance move from the entire <laughs> set. Cause I have, I have two that really stuck out to me, but I want to hear yours first. Um, it's hard for me to remember them all to be honest. Cause there's so many good ones in there. I mean, I think, so the, the first thing that I said when I first saw this, that I said to my new British friends was I've never seen 
a concert film or even just a concert in general where everyone felt so free to move no matter how Mm. weird it looked no matter how quirky it looked no matter how awkward it looked where they felt so free to move um and i think that that is true throughout the whole thing and with everyone Mm -hmm. so in terms of my favorite dance move i don't know it's it's hard i think there's i have some favorite shots that sort of influence that like one of my absolute Mm -hmm. favorite shots um is from I think once in a lifetime where they're doing that back bend. Yes. And mm-hmm. and he and um David Byrne does, does this insane back bend and that's cool. But the shot of the background singers doing the back bend where they're like a washed in light that makes them actually look like angels. I'm like, this is that's cool. Mm-hmm. Um I mean David Byrne's crazy legs always, always. Just yes. all of the crazy legs that he does. Um I think my favorite moment with a prop is the moment where he uses the lamp and he's yes. dancing with the lamp. It makes the light look like it's floating. Mm-hmm. I just have so many. I love at the very, very end where they do cross out and painless, where the um, background singers are like flinging their hair back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think my favorite dance moments of all ever are probably every time the background dancers were imitating someone. So there's mm-hmm. the a few moments where they're imitating David Byrne. There's a moment where they're imitating Jerry Harrison. There's also that fucking moment where David Byrne literally runs like three laps around. Yeah, the yeah, 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 yeah. The running, <laughs> the, the running is so good. Yeah, the running, the running in place, the running around the stage. I don't know. I could just go on forever. That was way too long. Cut half of that, but I could go yeah. on forever. No, no, no. That was perfect. I mean, it, it. How long you talked about that describes just how good all of it is. Like how hard it yeah. is to pick a moment. I mean, yeah. I will say that there were two in particular that really stuck out to me. The one really stuck out to me because I would have done anything to have like been a part of this line is when they were all quote unquote, like jogging in place. Yes. I that love is, that. That is one of the most fun sensations I can ever imagine is how locked into the music and the groove you are while you are playing your music. That was the thing that I was saying was half of the time. Well, first of all, how are they singing and playing their instruments while literally running and jumping up and down? And then half of the time in the dark, like, I was just, I don't, I was like, this is like, did you train for this? I don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. So that scene blew me away. Like as a musician, I was just imagining trying to play that. But then also one moment that just, I will never ever forget it, it can be described in just two words which is just wiggly pants yeah and, and you know exactly yeah. what i'm talking about the moment yeah. where he's just like wiggling those big ass pants but he's yeah, not I wearing think... the top coat and yes, it looks he... so yes, good okay. oh my when god he takes off the oversized suit jacket but leaves on the oversized suit pants mm-hmm. is a moment of pure serotonin yes it's just yes like... It's just so amazing, and only David Byrne would do it, you know. And also, um, you know that David Byrne is having so much fun while he's doing it. Uh, you, you everyone, know, you know everyone. that he's like, look at how big these fucking pants are, and he's just wiggling yeah, them. Man. And you're like, oh man, I wish. I, I was also love there. Um, I also love the moment where he's singing on the floor. I just love. Yes, I mean, he's so he's so energetic throughout the whole thing. To have that energy, if I had the energy that David Byrne fucking has, you know how much I could get accomplished? <laughs> I could do so much. You could drop one of the most important albums and uh, and live um, movies if, of could. the entire century. I could. Oh, geez. All right. That's, I mean, I feel like 
any more talking about it and I'll just be here all day. <laughs> yeah, I don't know like what else to say about it. It's just so fucking it's just so It's so good. Please just go and watch it. Like if you, yeah. if you haven't it's seen it, it's also free on YouTube. You it's free on YouTube. There's no yeah, excuse. There's no yep, excuse. Yep, cuz that's where I watched it. I watched it. It's perfect for like a Sunday gray afternoon where you just want to like have a little bit of energy, have a little bit of groove. It's just great. Just please do yourself a favor and watch it. It's I mean, it's so phenomenal. It's amazing. This week, as you can tell, was kind of us just fangirling the whole time. It was us saying we love this group and yeah. it deserves an entire pod episode to itself just so that anyone who has not listened would just be convinced by the two of us going. Because I think sometimes it's like, you know, someone could be like, oh, I might listen to Animal Collective or like, oh, you know, maybe I'll watch Derek Delgadio. But like, no, like you gotta, <laughs> you gotta, you gotta, you know, go to Talking Heads and experience this but with next week we're definitely diving back into the territory that we're kind of more used to where we have an album that one person just has no idea about and then a movie where one person has no idea about and yeah the album that nadira will be listening to for this coming week is yeast by joanna newsome and what do you know about Joanna Newsom? Um, I know that she is married to one of my favorite people in TV and film, Andy Samberg. I know that I've... Okay, so years ago, when this song first came out, um, Chance the Rapper tweeted about it. And so the only song that I've ever heard from her is... I don't even know how to say it. Sapaconican? Is that how you say I it? Think, I think that's right. That's how I say yeah. it, at least. That's the only song I've ever heard from her. Um, so that's and I know that she plays the harp that those are the three things Sapakonikin, Andy Sandberg, the harp those are the three things I know about Joanna Newsom um, so I'm intrigued I'm intrigued I think I might actually have some divisive opinions about this one and I'm excited to um, be a harbinger of chaos um, mm, yes and I will say that um, out of all the albums that I have made you listen to so far and I and I don't mean this in like a mean way to Joanna, but this might be my least favorite so far. Like it's one that okay. I it's one that I don't have a super strong emotional connection to. Mm-hmm. But when I listen to it, its impact is simply undeniable. And yes. why yes, 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 yes. why it's important and why I'm making it listen to you, we'll get into it next week. But it's simply undeniable. It's just yeah notable because this is kind of the first album I picked where I don't really have much of a story about it in the way that I have previous ones. It's more just like I know this album you should mm-hmm. listen to it because you should listen to Joanna Newsom because everyone should listen to her. Right. So I had a really hard time picking a movie that would fit Joanna Newsom. I listened to Sapaconican again. Um, and I think to be completely honest, a lot of the movies that would fit her sound are movies that I personally probably haven't seen. Like I had a lot of theories about movies that could work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, <laughs> um, and so I decided to just choose two random movies that like maybe could work, but also maybe could not. And one of them is like a maybe could. The other one is like a definitely would not work is the opposite end of the sort of white girl spectrum. And mm-hmm. so I think I'm going to go with that one. Have okay. a little bit of divisive energy. So yeah. your movie is um, a very, very popular cult classic indie film called drop dead gorgeous you know what's funny is 
I when you said that, because oftentimes Nadir will be like, "Have you seen this movie?" Like in text, yeah. just so we don't like have a weird moment. But like you said that title, and I was like, I feel like I definitely should know what this is, but I have no idea. <laughs> Yeah, so it's about, it starts a young Kirsten Dunst and a, a young everyone, actually. There's lots of big names in it. And it's about, um, it's about the sort of like wicked um, environment of pageantry and like young girls pageants and stuff. And it's hilarious, but also it's a dark comedy. So there's definitely some sort of dark elements to it. Um, but it's just, I feel like the energy will be completely different than Joanna Newsom. Mm-hmm. But it's still mostly about like white women and Joanna Newsom is a white woman. So I figured why not just compare these two elements of white womanhood if if we so please. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I will say, Yeast, while, you know, heavily is a Baroque pop album, um, it, it's got some dark themes to it. So who knows? This might cool. end up linking yeah. up more than you think. Yeah, maybe. And I'm really intrigued to see how this goes. So yeah, so Drop Dead Gorgeous is your movie and I think that we can perfectly say that talking heads remain in light stop making sense firmly off the list should be off of yours too like out of listening I I feel like we say this every week but like out of everything we've listened to so far yeah my my god just go and it's gotta be these it's gotta gotta be be these it's gotta be it's gotta be this and um yeah with that we'll see you next time where we listen to maybe some divisive things and maybe actually make you angry. I don't know. Yeah, I feel like there's too much agreeing between the two of us. We need to start lighting it up. We need to start lighting the shit up. And I feel like next week will be good for that. Yeah, hopefully. (laughs) All right, bye, y'all. Bye. Off the List is made by Ben and me, Nadira. Our artwork is by Rebecca Pearson, and our music is by Cedric Hawkeyes.